welcome to Meanwhile in the Future, a podcast about the future. Every week we take on a specific future scenario to really overthink what that would be like. Every episode we start with a little time travel into that future to see what's going on. Then we come back to now, where we talk with some experts about what that future might really be like. Got it? Cool. This week we're starting in the year 2085. The court has considered the nature and circumstance of the offense. I have identified the aggravating and mitigating factors and considered those in arriving at a sentence for Nathaniel Michelson. The court finds, as the jury found, that the crime in this case was particularly cruel. The offense was committed with at least one deadly weapon, a gun, and at least two kinds of poison. It involved considerable premeditation. The court has also considered the defendant's childhood background, family history, and expressed remorse. The court finds that the mitigating factors are not sufficient to call for leniency, and that a lengthy sentence is appropriate. It is ordered, the defendant shall be incarcerated for 274 years with no possibility of parole. It is ordered that the defendant will be assigned a doctor to administer life extension treatments for those 274 years. Should the defendant complete a set of as-of-yet undetermined rehabilitation programs, they may be entitled to further life extension subsidies after their sentence. Court is adjourned. So, in this future, we've figured out life extension technology. For all of you who've written in asking me to do an episode about longevity, this is for you. But instead of looking at the usual living forever stuff, we're specifically going to talk about what happens when it gets applied to the prison system. And here we're going to mostly talk about the U.S. prison system. In 2012, there were 159,000 people serving life sentences in the United States. About 50,000 of those people were serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. But what if life in prison could mean 100 or 200 or 400 years? Does that change the way sentences are doled out? What happens when a person gets out of prison? It turns out that there's a philosopher who thinks about exactly this. Uh, My name's Rebecca Roach. I'm lecturer in philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London. Now, in order to think about life extension in the context of prisons, we have to talk first about what life extension would actually look like. When lifespan technology becomes available that would enable people to live for, say, a thousand years, it's not just going to be, it's not just going to come in the form of uh, a bottle marked the elixir of life. It's It's going to come about incrementally, so gradually scientists will find ways of counteracting this and that effect on the body that leads to sort of getting gradually more decrepit and dying. Lifespan enhancement technology is just going to be a type of medical technology and we don't generally think it's humane to withhold medical treatment from prisoners or from anyone else. So um, so if this technology was available then we would all be having access to it anyway, you know, assuming that we have a just society. And here is where we need to pause. That last thing that Roach said, assuming we have a just society, that's really important. And as far as I can tell, we can't assume that. There are power inequalities that exist now. There are systems of oppression that exist now. And they will continue to exist in the future until we change them. But if we haven't done the work to change them or address them, they're not going to magically go away, right? That's Walida Imarisha, the editor of a collection of Afrofuturism called Octavia's Brood. 
you know, I love Star Trek. I'm a big, I'm, I'm a total Trekkie, but the idea that somehow magically we reach the 25th century and racism is just gone on the planet earth, just gone. And it's the aliens that we're, you know, that we're fighting against, you know, if they're a hostile alien race that we unite against the aliens. And I, you know, I find that idea to be incredibly, you know, ridiculous. And I think that the reality is, is that the systems of oppression will continue um, whether or not there's an outside force or enemy in the future. So far, we've been talking about life extension in prisons as a theoretical idea without talking about the fact that prisons are real places full of real people. And those people, in many cases, are the victims of an unjust society. These are not philosophical debates. These are real people's lives, right? These are human beings. These are family members and loved ones and community members. Here's the thing. When we talk about punishment, we tend to talk about punishment for the most evil people we can possibly imagine. People who've committed really, really atrocious crimes. People we might want to put away for a thousand years. Serial killers like Jack the Ripper or mass murderers like Hitler. The problem with this is that the vast majority of people in prisons are not like that at all. To liken Hitler to folks who are incarcerated from the very beginning uh, sets up this conversation where we're talking about one of the people who has done the most horrific things ever conceivable and possible. That's what we're talking about. And that is actually not who is sitting in prison cells across this country at this very moment. Over 90% of people who are incarcerated never had a day in court. They didn't face a judge, they didn't face a jury, they got a trial by prosecutor. And so when we talk about who's incarcerated, these myths that if you go to prison, you did something wrong, uh, have to be, you know, they have to be imploded. Now, there are a lot of books you can read about the ways in which the current justice system in the United States is full of injustice, and we don't really have time to get really deep into that here. But it's important to think about the ways in which future technology will interact with future prejudice. For example, in the United States, research already shows that punishments doled out to people of color are harsher than those doled out to white people for the same crimes. And there's no reason to think that wouldn't apply to a future with life extension technology either. Or we can go back to how these medical interventions might be administered in the first place. I think it's really important also to say, if this is implemented, how is it going to be implemented, right? You know, folks who are having mental health issues, who are, you know, prescribed medications while they're incarcerated, those medications aren't administered by doctors. Those medications are administered by guards. And guards use those medications to make prisoners do what they want. So if you don't do what the guard wants, you don't get your medication, right? Or if the guard's like, you know what, I'm tired. I don't want to walk all the way to the infirmary and get your pills and come back. You'll just have to wait till tomorrow, right? If you go on lockdown, you get no access to your medications, right? So I think it's really important to recognize with this, this supposed, you know, this theoretical technology, the, the reality is it will probably be administered by prison guards, right? Not by doctors. And those prison guards are using this as one more weapon to maintain control within prisons. And what does it mean to have someone in prison for 300 years? Roach thinks that perhaps when people are living really long lives, prisons might focus more on trying to rehabilitate them. Uh, so, you know, you commit a crime, you murder somebody when you're 30, say, and um, 300 years later you're still around and you still have murderous tendencies. I mean, if that were the case, then we would have to sort of, you know, seriously think about how we're going to um, keep people in line once they 
once they leave prison, assuming they're fit and healthy enough to go on and commit murders. Um, on the other hand, it might be that sort of we, um, we come to revise our views about this because it could turn out that um, if you're living for several centuries, your character over that time might change quite a lot. So it might be that there's, you know, there's certain crimes now that we think are, um, or, or certain types of criminal that we think are sort of unreformable. So um, if you if you're a serial killer for 30 years and you get caught and sent to prison when you're 70, um, we probably think that, you know, there's not much chance of being able to reform somebody like that before they die. But on the other hand, if they're going to live another 500 years, say, then, you know, depending on um, how things turn out, it might be that we have reason for optimism about how reformable they could be. So it might be that um, those sorts of murderous tendencies only last a uh, hundred years in a person, say. So we kind of have to worry about them for a while after they leave prison, but then after a certain amount of many years have passed, then we can um, we can conclude that they've kind of moved on from that. A bit like how children grow out of their habits. So if someone was going to live a thousand years and we only put them away for 200, it might make more sense to try and change that person into a different person before they get out. But if you look at the current rates of recidivism, the term used for people returning to prison after finishing their sentence, you'd find that the thing that keeps people out of prison isn't character reform. We've seen that the number one reducer of recidivism of people going back to prison is education. The more education you can get while you're incarcerated, the less likely you are to go back to prison. So, you know, if you get a bachelor's, you're that much less likely. If you get a master's, if you get a PhD, the recidivism rate is almost zero for people who get PhDs while they're incarcerated. I think that's an important statistic because that's not about the person themselves changing. That's about them being able to access society. I think that's really important. It's not about fixing broken people, but it's about, uh, you know, giving them enough access in this societal hierarchy to be able to even step through the door. And those who do serve their 300 years and then have to try to rejoin society would probably find it incredibly difficult. So much will have changed in terms of culture and technology. It would be like someone from 1715 trying to enter modern society today. In 1715, the Ottoman Empire was battling the Republic of Venice for control of parts of Greece. Not only does that mean 300 years worth of cultural and technological change to encounter once you get out, it also means that once you do rejoin society, you have to deal with probably hundreds of years of stigma about your past. I think that's an important question to talk about in this, you know, theoretical longevity conversation, because... You know, is the longevity just happening while they're incarcerated or does it continue afterwards? So do they have to deal with hundreds of years after that of, you know, basically being rejected everywhere they go, not being able to access public housing, not being able to access uh, if you have a drug conviction, you know, uh, public assistance, not being able to get a job, right? Not having adequate health care, right? And so what what are your options left? And it's one thing when that's for decades, but what does that mean when it's for hundreds of years? Now, life extension technology is going to be a slow march, if it ever happens at all. In that time, we can hope that while some people work on curing cancer and heart disease, other people work on breaking down the injustices that exist in our society today. For Roach, a lot of this comes down to thinking not about technology, but about punishment. The interesting thing about a lot of this stuff is that, um, you know, the technology is all fancy and it's fun to think about but um the most interesting issues i think are the the old issues so that are just raised in a new way by 
um, thinking about this technology. So issues like, you know, why are why do we pass the punishments that we pass? What factors are relevant to selecting a punishment? How does retribution interact with reform and rehabilitation? And things like that. Um, so really, a lot of these questions are quite fundamental. And for Imarisha, you can't think about punishment and prisons without thinking about race and injustice. I think that we have all been taught and and indoctrinated from basically, you know, the minute we come out of the womb, that prisons are where bad people go. And that if you do something bad, you go to prison, that we can't step out of that frame. But I think it's incredibly important, you know, for me that prisons actually have almost nothing to do with crime. They actually have to do with social control. All of these ideas of law and order and safety, you know, are really smoke screens for the foundation of the prison system, which is about controlling, uh, containing and exploiting potentially rebellious communities, in th- specifically in this case, formerly enslaved black folks. For more on longevity, prisons, and how those two things might interact, head to gizmodo.com, where we'll post links to more information. Meanwhile in the Future is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, with help from the Gizmodo staff. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Rahawa Hale and Brent Rose. A quick note, Meanwhile in the Future is taking a week off next week, but we'll be back the week after with another possible or not-so-possible future. And that one, I promise, will be a little bit more optimistic. That's all for this future. Come back in two weeks and we'll travel to a different one.